Our focus on the lesson study is brought to us by Pastor Dick Dirksen, a no no stranger to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He served in many capacities from Florida Hospital uh, to Maranatha, and now he's back pastoring in the Oregon Conference. And uh, we've been blessed, as he has shared with us here this week. Uh, He is married to Brenda, and they have three grandchildren, excuse me, three married children and three grandchildren, two in New Zealand and one in Yukaipa in California. And so, Pastor Dirksen, I don't want to take any more of your time, but thank you for being with us, and we look forward to hearing what you have to share this morning. Good morning. Yes, three grandchildren. Doesn't seem like many until you put two of them in New Zealand. They're a long ways away. In fact, our 14-year-old grandson, Griffin, came and spent four months with us uh, over Christmas holiday. Went to school at Portland Adventist Academy, played basketball in the United States to see if that was, to see how his skills matched. And this weekend, starting tonight, actually, I don't know, what day is it in New Zealand? (laughs) It's tomorrow today. Figure that out. But uh, somehow Griff has ended up on a national under-15 basketball team that hasn't been losing any games. And uh, it's partly because of him, I think. He's kind of a brilliant young man. Uh, It's all his father's genes, of course. It's one of the... You know, somebody asked me yesterday, is it, is it wise to go as a student missionary or a task force worker somewhere in the world? Our daughter, Juline, was a student, a graduate student at La Sierra University. And she called me one day and said, Dad, this isn't where I'm supposed to be and this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Send me somewhere in the world, but I won't go to Korea and teach English. <laughs> that was her only limitation. So I called a friend who had just been given the assignment of president of the brand new New Zealand, Tahiti, Island, Union, rotten job. And uh, I said, Al, can you use uh, Juline? And he said, yeah, send her over. And so for two years, she was the associate youth director of the Union. And um, she fell in love with New Zealand. We were very clear with her can fall in love with anybody you want as long as he has an American or Canadian passport and is on his way home. (laughs) Then she fell in love with Roru, who is a Cook Islander Kiwi, and uh, she never came back. (laughs) Oh yeah, they've been home here and there, but you know, it is so wonderful to have cappuccino grandkids and to have... uh, and to have the breadth that comes from multicultural understandings. It's really special. Having been raised in the Caribbean myself, it, uh, it just is exciting to me to, to experience a wee bit of what our kids get to go through overseas. Got your Bibles? Yeah. I want you to start with me with a verse that... Um, has really been a challenge to me over my life. Philippians 3, verse 8, it's today's lesson text. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's really important for me to share with you today for a variety of reasons, one of which is I have been doing some work for Adventist Health at, out on the West Coast after the fire in Paradise. And so I have had the privilege of going in and out of the mountain and the, the experience there a bit. And how many times I have met people who lost everything except each other and Jesus. There in the first Sabbath when the Paradise Seventh-day Adventist Church met with the Chico Seventh-day Adventist Church down the hill, the church was overflowing, and the brand-new pastor, Steve, who had just moved three weeks before and lost absolutely everything except a Jeep in the, uh, in the fire, stood there, and, and together they sang the goodness of Jesus Christ. They also sang the Gaither song. Remember? This is a, a genuine Bill and Gloria Gaither song. I had won all I could win. There was no place I hadn't been. But my heart was so needy and poor. Then I heard him gently say, lose it all. Find my way. So I gave it up and found all and more. Remember the chorus? You, you can just hear one of those bass voices. I lost it all. <laughs> I won't go any farther. It's okay. <laughs> I lost it all to find everything. I died a pauper to become a king. When I learned how to lose, I found out how to win. Oh, I lost it all to find everything. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what we need to lose, but I do know what we need to find. May we find that in you every day. Amen. In 1966, my grandfather, Jacob Cornelius Dirksen, J.C., they called him, was in his 80s, and he had a dream. Now, this is my grandpa, the guy who, whose father came through Ellis Island from Germany, from the Ukraine, from Russia. A man who named his youngest son Victor and never could pronounce his name. It was always Victor. A man who, who, who brought along onions, real Ukrainian onions, you know, the ones that grow above ground and not underground. They're still growing. A man who homesteaded three times in the United States. A man who spent months in a wagon on the Oregon Trail. And in his 80s now, he calls me into his room and says, I had a dream. You need to know my dream. And I said, Grandpa, J.C., tell me what's your dream. And he said, I was standing at the edge of a giant river. Grandma Lena had died two years earlier. Grandpa was alone. Hell 
is being alone in many ways. And Grandpa alone, Vista, California, take you outside and he'd show you his corn. Grandpa won the awards for best corn in that part of, well, San Diego County. Uh, 12 feet tall, six ears on every stalk, baby. Grandpa knew how to grow corn. And he said, I was standing on the edge of this river and I could see across the river. It was a large, muddy, rapidly flowing river. And on the other side was the best corn I'd ever seen in my life. It stood three or four stories tall. There were hundreds of ears on it. And there were people having picnics and having parties and throwing the balls back and forth. I wanted to be on the other side of that river. And then an angel came and stood beside me, identified himself and said, Jake, you want to go cross? Yeah, I do. I'm ready. And the angel said, it's hard. It's messy. Going across is not easy, Jake. You sure? Sure. You'll need this rope to help you. The angel leaned down, reached into the water, and pulled out a big sisal rope, a good strong one, one of those inch across, and handed it to Grandpa. And so Grandpa said, I, I, I grabbed that rope for all I was worth. And I could feel the power of the current in the rope. And the angel said, go. Have faith. God wants you on the other side. And Grandpa described the walk. Into the water, rocky, rocky not firm base. It seemed to move under his feet. The current was, would swish him around. A couple places he, he fell in holes. Always oh, holding on to that rope, man. The angel had said, hold on to the rope. The rope will help you across. He held on. Till finally, he felt solid sand beneath his feet. Oh, it was close to the other side. And as he came closer and closer and began to actually climb out to where he was now only knee-deep in the water and then standing on the sand of the other side, the excitement was overwhelming. And he looked down at a rope. It was about 23 inches long. It only reached into the water no deeper and grandpa looked at me and said Dick hold on to the rope of faith it will get you across it will be messy but when it feels as if you are losing your life hold on to the rope it's just long enough to take you home. <laughs> I was a student missionary in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. And one night about 11.30, uh, we were in the basement of a house, second story of the house. Dr. Luthus lived up there. And I heard Doc's voice say, Dirksen, you got a phone call. That was in the days when a, a phone call was really important. And uh, so I went 
out, around, up, and Vernon was holding the, the phone for me. I picked up the phone and, Dick Dirksen, thinking, wow. And the voice on the other end was Elder Walt Blem, president of the Arizona Conference at that point, a good friend, a good personal friend, one who had helped me choose Jesus years before when he was youth director for the uh, Southeastern California Conference. And he said, Dick, you're sitting down. I said, I am now. He said, your mom was killed in a car accident last night. Your dad may die. I need you home as quick as possible. Let's pray. <laughs> Sounds crass, doesn't it? But that was my buddy Walt. He could talk that way because we already had a relationship. He didn't need to ask me about the weather. He needed to tell me about what was important, about what I had lost. Your mom's gone. First thing that remembered in my mind was as I was walking out onto the tarmac of Lindbergh Field, San Diego, getting ready to fly off to be a student missionary to change the world for God. It was in the days when you could actually walk on the asphalt, you could actually go to the uh, stairway, you could even take somebody up into the, the plane if you wanted, it was no big deal. This chased you off before the engine started. I, Mom took me, Dad, of course, worked for the church so he wasn't able to be where his kids were sarcastic snide <laughs> truth I found my seat and the flight attendant came back and said your mom wants to talk to you again and I said oh yeah great and so I got off went down the stairs and she was at the bottom and she threw her arms around me and she said Dick this is the last time I'm going to see you on this earth I want you to promise me and I said oh mom come on I'm just going to Puerto Rico it's not like I'm going to Kansas or something. <laughs> and she said, quit it. This is the last time I'm going to see you on this earth. I want you to promise me you'll be in heaven with me. I want you next door. I hugged and promised and got back on the plane and flew away. And now it's true. <sighs> Dr. Luthis paid for an airline ticket to get me from Mayaguez to San Juan. In San Juan, I went to the Trans World Airways terminal, a table. You know, remember TWA? They had big planes. And uh, I went to the counter to the guy who was there, who I don't know anything more than that he was a guy, and he had on the right uniform. And I said, I got a call last night that my mom has been killed in a car accident and I've got to fly to San Francisco and I need a ticket from San Juan to San Francisco. I have about $12 in the bank. My uncle says he will put money in the bank as soon as I get to San Francisco. Would you please take a bad check? <laughs> you know that guy looked at me and said, sure. And I wrote out a check for that, uh, absolutely useless. He says, I'll keep it for three days. Just make sure you get it filled by then, okay? I'll just keep it here in my drawer till then. God bless you, kid. The plane from San Juan to JFK seemed to take forever. 
I was in an, a window seat with nobody else in the pew. And a flight attendant, about halfway through the flight, came by and sit, pulled in beside me and said, you okay? And I said, no. She said, what happened? I told her. Last night, my mom was killed in a car accident on the Silverado Trail in Napa County in California, and I'm going home for a funeral, and my dad may die too. I don't have no idea what's going to happen here now. And she said, you ever read the Bible? <laughs> Where? Where does God find these people? <laughs> when I get to heaven, some of you know this, when I get to heaven, my first stop is the angels from supply. I want to know how they pull off all these coincidences. I said, yeah, I've, I've got one here with me. In fact, I had just received in the mail a copy of Kenneth Taylor's new translation, The Living Bible. And the section I had included Isaiah. She reached for that little booklet, opened it as if she had written it herself, turned to chapter 57, verse 1, and read these words to me aloud. The good perish. The godly die before their time. No one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to realize that God is taking them away from the terrors which are to come. For the godly who die shall rest in peace. And that lady hugged me, prayed for me, and said, I think there are some rough times ahead in your life, sir. Your mom will not be there. Jesus will. Hold on. Then she got up and went away to serve somebody. I never saw her again. How do angels get off airplanes when they're flying? <laughs> I wondered that part of the way. Uh, yeah, I lost my mom. My dad's fine. He's almost 101, crotchety as ever. Lonely as ever. Every night when he goes to bed, he prays that God will take him during the night. And when he wakes up, he screams at God for not listening. Doesn't know what to do with all of that. He wants to be home. He wants to be on the other side. <laughs> Lost it all to find everything. think about my mom a lot. My mom was one of those people who people met Jesus when they met my mom. It was very simple. The people who know her, knew her, June, was she was just a unique, kind, caring, loving individual. And how many funerals have I been to where I used this text? Everyone wonders, where have the righteous gone? not realizing that God has taken them away from the terror that is to come. I don't know what that means. But I do know that it means he's coming. Is that fair enough? I look back at the life that my family and I have lived since mom died. I'm glad she, had, I'm glad she didn't have to go through it all. 
Lost my little brother to cancer at age 29. When he died, he was pastor of the Indio Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he was pastor of the Indio Palm Springs Happy Wanderer Church, which was a multi-denominational church. He would preach one sermon on Sabbath and then the identical sermon on Sunday. And uh, at his funeral, the Happy Wanderers wandered in, and so did all the Admetus, and they just had a big party because they were all part of his parish. And we, we preached the last sermon he wanted preached, which is trust in Jesus. He's your only hope. He wanted to die at home. Told his wife, Deanna, I'm going to die here tonight. It was Sabbath. He wanted to go in and preach, but he couldn't get out of bed. And so his intern preached, and Jack laid in bed and then invited all the elders and deacons to come to and be around his bed while he preached his last sermon to them. He did that. They all left, and his doctor, his wife, and Jack together. Jack said, well, I'm going to die tonight now. Indiana said, I don't want you to die here. I want you to, no, I don't, I don't, I don't really don't, but I said I would, but I don't want you to. But I'm going to die right here. And the doctor said, but you know there's that, that Catholic doctor who's at the emergency room over at Eisenhower Medical Center in Palm Springs? I think you need to give your testimony to him. Take me. <laughs> and so they took, uh, called the ambulance, and Jack went to the emergency room. And when he got there, of course, he was the color of bad carrots. Uh, the, everything had taken over. The cancer was absolutely overwhelming. There was nothing that anybody could do about it. He was case number 12 of that kind of cancer recorded ever in the world. And uh, the Catholic doctor was on duty, saw Jack took him immediately into one of the rooms, got ready to start an IV, and then stopped. And said, I can't start an IV. He needs to go tonight. He even looks like Jesus. Jack never said a word to him. The man walked outside the door, sat down on a stool, and cried for 20 minutes. When he came back in, Jack was gone. When we talked to him later about Jack, the doctor said, you know, he's a unique man. Every time I worked with him, I knew I had met Jesus through this man. And every time I think of him, I know he, he taught me about the Christ. When I have a really tough case, I pray to Jack. And he answers, he's obviously a saint. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. It's what he said. <laughs> I lost it all. That I might find everything. One more story. Uh, uh, by the way, if you've missed it, we've been talking about how we lost it all to find everything. How some of us have lost life and those around us. Some of us have lost family. Some of us have lost hope. Have you lost hope? We've all lost family. And some of us know what it's like to, to, to squeeze the bulb one last time, knowing that we probably will never have the energy to squeeze it again. We've looked cancer in the eye. Some of us have won. Some of us have lost. But every time God has won, 
So I'm in Paradise, California. I'm talking to a physician, his wife, and their teenage son, Carson. And as I'm listening to this story, I'm overwhelmed. Here's the story. Carson gets up the morning of the big fire in Paradise, gets his stuff together. He's already, of course, on his cell phone, and he's been listening in to the sheriff lines and to the Cal Fire. So he knows exactly what's going on, where the fire is, and he realizes that it's going to come close to his house, and he better get whatever he can. So he gets his old beat-up VW Passat, piles everything that he thinks may be of value in it. (laughs) Didn't take long. Uh, I mean, you only put so many basketballs in a Passat. (laughs) And, uh, And the phone rings. And it's a friend across the other side of town saying, Carson, you've got to come help me. I need some help. I'm, I'm afraid the fire's going to take our house. Can you come help me drive one of the cars down the mountain? Well, his family has a whole lot more than Carson's family. And so Carson drives his Passat, drives it into the garage of this other house, loads his stuff into the Mercedes, and backs the Mercedes out as he and the lady of the house, because they're the only ones around, watch the house next door explode in flames and split as fast as they can down the road. They go down Pence, they turn a couple other corners, and they find themselves in such an absolute conglomeration of impossible traffic that they know they're not getting out. He loses her somewhere. Got her Mercedes, but he's lost her. She's gone down the hill someplace, he hopes. And he looks around, he's got his stuff in the car, it's all that's there, and suddenly both sides of the road he is on explode in fire. The car ahead of him is burning. The two cars behind him, one of which is a Cal fire truck, explode. He knows he's dead. He is able to point the Mercedes into the ditch and sort of get it out of traffic if there ever will be traffic again. He gets out and begins to run. The fire is so awful that there is no oxygen and Carson cannot breathe. His cell phone for a moment works and his mom calls. Carson, where are you? I'm going to die, Mom. And they have a brief conversation. The phone goes dead. She says, call your dad. He can't call his dad. His phone's not working. So he does what any teenager would do. He begins filming the fire <laughs> with his cell phone. <laughs> it's an amazing video. I've got it on my phone. It's, uh, it's just pretty bizarre because it's red, 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 and every once in a while you get a little look at Carson because it's kind of a selfie mess, and he looks like he's about going to die. In fact, wonders if he hasn't already. And then his phone rings. Carson, where are you? I'm just about at the top of the hill getting ready to turn left, and if I turn left, I may be able to get down to your office, but I don't know. There's just fire everywhere, Dad. There's fire everywhere. What do I do, Dad? And Dad said, turn left at the next road. Run as hard and fast as you can. I will run to meet you. Carson put his phone away, end of cell service, end of battery, 
and tried to run in oxygen-empty air. He ran hard. And then in the black of the smoke, so thick he could not see his hand in front of his face, he ran in to the one person on earth worth finding. And his dad looked at him, hugged him, and said, just run to where I am. That's always the safest place. Lord Jesus, the rope may not reach except to you. Teach us to hold on. Amen.